This is Lawrence Juba, and you're listening to Jim and Mike Talk Music. Good morning. My name is Mike. I'm Jim. Hey, Mike. Welcome to Jim, Jim and Mike Talk Music. You've got a few guitars in the background. Wow. Just like I imagined Watch it. There, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Are you, uh, you're in California, is that correct? I'm in LA, yeah. LA. Okay, very good. We'll start with your uh, newest album uh, called Select Blends. What is that? <laughs> Select Blends, is that your newest one? <laughs> oh, Select Blends. Yeah, that's yeah. my newest album. Yeah. So you put out 27 albums? Is that correct? No, I think it's more than that. More than that? I lost count. That's It all depends on what you include. If you include uh, stuff that I'm featured on. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like, actually, like, on my label, we just put out a a record that I'm the featured guitar player on that I'm not the the primary artist. But I think I've done, like, 30. Okay. I lost count some time ago. What about that latest one that you just mentioned? Uh, what's, we're interested in that. What, what about that one? Well, um, during lockdown, I took to doing Facebook Live three times a week, what mm-hmm. I called Tea Time with LJ. Yeah. LJ, that's me. Yeah. <laughs> um, and um, that, you know, just like half hour, mostly half hour sessions, sometimes long, but mostly that. And um, I kept an archive of all of them. And, and because I was running everything through my studio here, I had decent audio quality, mm-hmm. much better audio quality than Facebook allowed. And I just chose eight originals and eight tunes and put them into, uh, put them into an album, just so that there was some memorialization of that experience. Brought on by COVID, most likely, like a lot of people. Oh, yeah. I mean, I yeah. wouldn't have been doing that were it not for the fact that you know, it shut down everything. Yeah. And people really seem to appreciate it. And I, I still do them periodically. Mm-hmm. I did one on last Wednesday to yeah, I watched, celebrate I watched tea time. Uh, mm-hmm. the anniversary of Paul and John meeting. Yeah. That's just, it was something that kept me in shape too. And kind of gave me the opportunity to dig deep into my own repertoire. I mean, I've written over 150 tunes, of wow. solo or acoustic or acoustic with ensemble. And as well as, you know, doing kind of instant arrangements of stuff like that. It was really, um, it was, it was a, a good experience for me to do. And it, it kept me out of trouble. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's, there was some uh, live streams. I would watch uh, a couple once a week. And so, and then some people once a month. So three times, two or three times a week. What did you say? Oh, actually five days a week. Oh, and it okay. just was too much because uh, <laughs> I, you know, I was yeah. really kind of like I do the research for some artist's birthday or a composer's birthday or some mm-hmm. event happened that would give me the opportunity to do an arrangement of a tune that I did before. You know, for example, um, 
I think it was either a monkeys related thing or a Carol King related thing that I did Pleasant Valley Sunday. Yeah, that's one I like. I enjoy on that album. album. Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a very cool tune. I didn't realize at the time I did it that the, the very cool guitar lick that it opens up with, I think it's like Louis Shelton or one mm-hmm. of the, the, the Wrecking Crew guys, but it was actually Mike Nesmith who did it. Oh, I didn't even know that. Yeah. Well, the, the... People would tend to underrate the musicianship of, of the monkeys. Yeah, they always have. Yeah, <laughs> right. Just seeing them on TV and wondering what they're doing. So were, there were originals on there too, correct? Cause there's oh yeah, there's like eight originals and eight. Cobalt Blue, that's, that's an original, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I like paint it black on there too. Yeah, that's a cool one. And and I, you know that was just like an inst- what I call an instant arrangement. I mean, when I do arrangements of tunes, especially Beatle tunes and standards, I might spend you know a fair amount of time, maybe months, really refining the arrangement. But with these instant arrangements, it was okay. You know, just figure it out and play it, and <laughs> yeah. you know, kind of go with the flow. So there's a lot of improv in yeah, there, yeah, uh, because of that. Which, which makes me happy because, you know, the, on one hand, it's kind of the counterbalance to the discipline of being a, like a fingerstyle guitar player on the granular guitaristic level of like using an auto-tuning to find different textures and different um, harmonies and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But to balance that out with just the ability to just kind of jump in there and improv something, which really kind of relates in many respects, more to my electric guitar playing because I've always been an improviser in that realm, you know, having a jazz and kind of almost at times prog rock background in England. Tell our listeners a little bit more about fingerstyle, basically what it is. Especially our listeners well, who playing... love, love music but you know, aren't guitarists. So you know, what is, <laughs> give a basic uh, overview of that. Well, fingerstyle guitar really, you know, it's something that has its roots going back to the early Renaissance, except in that era, the guitar was more like a ukulele and the the dominant Mm -hmm. instrument was the lute. And that kind of tradition, you know, kind of flowed into what we call classical guitar, which, you know, you play with your right hand fingers, you don't use a pick. With fingerstyle guitar, it's really a, a similar approach, but on steel strings, typically, and with a repertoire that is more contemporary, whether that's original compositions or kind of folk-oriented stuff or, or arrangements of pop songs or whatever. So my early influences in that regard were Bert Jan and John Remborn, who were what was known as the folk Baroque in, in England. You know, they were in Pentangle. Also early, you know, Bob Dylan, Simon, uh, Stefan Grossman for Ragtime. I mean, I'd loved and still do love playing Ragtime style guitar mm-hmm. so that was kind of one track of my career that never really came to full 
uh, fruition until about 30 years ago when I actually had the time to really start to focus on it. Because my main thrust as a teenager was to become a studio musician. So in doing that, I listened to a lot of music and played a lot of different musical styles. So by being able to bring that musical experience into playing solo guitar and have a sense of how to orchestrate, arrange, um, improvise, having studied music and, and really kind of understanding texture and, and the dynamics of musical expression, being able to condense all of that into one guitar is not only artistically satisfying, but is also financially very right. useful because it means that I, you know, I've been able to tour as a soloist for, for some years now. And I've done many, many albums of just solo guitar, but not exclusively. I mean, some of my best performing tracks on, for example, on Sirius are, are ensemble pieces, but it's still driven mm -hmm. by what we call fingerstyle guitar. Mm -hmm. And I actually did a, a folio, a, a book for Hal Leonard a couple of years ago called The Evolution of Fingerstyle Guitar, mm -hmm. where I went back in music history and, and kind of pulled out stuff that we would consider, you know, we would label as classical, but in reality was simply kind of contemporary music in its day. Yeah, great explanation for our <laughs> listeners. Thank you. Oh, you're yeah, Hal, Len Hal Leonard, for those who don't know, Hal Leonard has a, a full range of uh, musical education books. It's a whole uh, series of probably uh, anything <laughs> musically. Yeah, well, this evolution book, I mean, it, as much as it, it, as much as there's an educational aspect to it, it's really, it's kind of like a history of the guitar through musical example and stuff that influenced me. There's one particular piece in there that I found when I was in college, I found in the British Museum that had never been published that I didn't understand until some years later was actually not written for the regular guitar, but for what was known as the English guitar, which was kind of a sitter. It was a, it was a different instrument. It was kind of halfway towards a mandolin almost and tuned quite differently, but it worked as a guitar piece. And, and there's a kind of a historical context to stuff like that, that I find quite fascinating. And in fact, the, like contemporary fingerstyle guitar players, you know, over the last generation or two, whether it was like Michael Hedges, for example, you know, there was a re really a renaissance of that style of playing that started in the 80s with, with Wyndham Hills, you know, artists like Alex Darcy and, uh, and Michael Hedges. But when I started putting out my solo albums in 1990, I was really kind of in the second wave of, of that kind of fingerstyle thing that coincided with the MTV Unplugged phenomenon. Mm -hmm. So you had you know, Eric Clapton's MTV Unplugged, right. you know, really kind of opened the floodgates for acoustic guitar sales mm -hmm. um, in, the, in the early 90s. And I was, you know, timing-wise, I kind of got to ride that wave because that was when I started putting out albums and, and started touring and also doing clinic. I mean, uh, to begin with, I was uh, associated with Taylor Guitars because they were the only company I found that made a, a guitar that had a cutaway, because I like a pie on the neck, but also with a wide enough neck to have the comfort value for, for fingerstyle playing. Mm -hmm. It's kind of on the way to classical guitar. You don't, you know, it doesn't work. It's not as easy, even though I have small hands, you know, with a narrow neck, you can't really get the flexibility. It's not quite enough real estate to, to do what needs to be done, at least from <laughs> mm -hmm. my point of view. So um, that was a very, I think, 
a very um, good timing on my part, but it also coincided with me becoming very, very active. I mean, it was in the 80s, but, but by the 90s as a studio musician. And there was a TV show called Seventh Heaven. I played a lot of TV shows in those yeah. movies, but there was a TV show called Seventh Heaven that ran for 11 seasons. And the composer, Dan Follier, is a guitar player. And he would write this really very complex alter-tuning acoustic guitar stuff for me to play. And it was very prominent in the musical score to the show. And we had archived a lot of the material. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, put out an album called Journey to My Heartland, which is the music that Dan wrote and we recorded for the show, which features me uh, very heavily. Mm -hmm. But the real advantage to that, beyond the fact that there were all musicians' union contracts, so, you know, it was kind of, it was a good union gig, was that it gave me the opportunity to be test driving various acoustic guitars in the studio. I mean, we mostly would record at Capitol studios, for example. Mm -hmm. So I was not just kind of once every you know, year or two going into a studio and recording a solo guitar album, but on a weekly basis going in with great musicians and mics and engineers um, and being able to take, whether it was a Taylor guitar or Collings guitar, or subsequently when I got involved with Martin guitars, mm -hmm. prototypes, my signature model guitar and recording with them on a, on a regular basis and being able to really kind of make assessments as to what really felt right, sounded right. And, and that in, the, uh, um, in 2002 led to my sig guitar with Martin, mm -hmm. which was really kind of, kind of engineered to, to suit my playing style, but wow. you know, became quite a popular instrument. Yeah, yeah. We are near Martin guitar. Actually, Mike lives in oh, Fountain you're in, Hill. Um, you're in, uh, in Pennsylvania. I'll yeah, be there yeah. at the end. Well, we're in New Jersey right now, but yeah. Mike lives in Pennsylvania. Yeah. You were saying? Yeah, no, I'll, I'll be at um, Martin on Main, Clark on the, 20, on the 30th of, of July this month. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. Checking my calendar real quick. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I'd come out and, and see you, but I'm, I'm going to be in Sweden. Yeah, well, I'll be believe around. Believe it or not, I'll be around. Yeah, so yeah. far to go. Yeah. <laughs> so we we didn't. I didn't know that you had a signature guitar through Martin. That's excellent, and it's uh, oh, it's yeah. one that's fit uh, more fit to your needs uh, for for how you play. That's inspiring. Oh, very much so. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't endorse anything unless I was actually using it. Yeah. On a. Yeah. Uh, on a daily minute by minute basis you know? <laughs> wow. and, and been through and the process was really interesting because once you know we we had an established body style what, what what's known as a model which is a smaller body it's not like a dreadnought size it's the same body size as a triple r but with a longer scale lens slightly shorter than a um like a fender scale lens but it's like 20 25.4 inches, which lends itself well to tuning down for the alter tuning stuff that I do. But, but going through a series of editions and prototypes with different bodywoods. So we, we did like mahogany, Brazilian rosewood, Indian rosewood, Madagascar mm -hmm. rosewood, Guatemalan rosewood, koa, uh, maple. And I've, I've actually settled on Cuban mahogany with a um, high alpine Swiss spruce top cut on the moon is what's known as wane uh, it's not known as moon spruce oh, um which is kind of a natural way of aging the wood because the 
they, when they cut it on the waning moon, the, the sap in, in the tree is at its lowest. So you get a drier log. Wow. The, the, the <laughs> unnatural doing that is what's known as tarification, where they, they kind of roast the wood to mm -hmm. extract a certain amount of moisture, you know, so that you just, just get a livelier guitar out of it. So, yeah. so all of that and being in the studio and, and, you know, having the opportunity to really kind of like compare all this and also, you know, on stage. But because on stage, typically one is using a pickup. So the, uh, the natural acoustic sound of the guitar tends to be a little sub subdued compared with the, just the, the general dynamics of the, the electronic. Let's switch gears a little bit. Uh, We're going to go back a, a, a ways. Back to the... We like to talk about <laughs> the band Wings. Oh, yeah. Which, you, yeah. which you were in <laughs> from 1978 to 81. Can you tell us a little bit how this came about? Were you friends with Danny Lane? You were friends with someone that maybe recommended well, I was, you? I was a studio musician in London. Mm-hmm. Working like, I mean, I was working seven days a week doing three, four sessions a day at a time. Very wow. busy. It's hard to imagine. <laughs> yeah. And I was um, playing lead guitar on a TV show with David Essex, who was a big pop star in England at the time. And every week on the show, we would have a guest artist. So one week was like Ronnie Spector, which was kind mm -hmm. of really cool. Yeah. But the next week was Denny Lane. And we did Go Now, the old Moody Blues hit, which mm -hmm. you know, was a staple of, of Denny's work also, you know, on, in the lot with wings. And he liked my playing, called up the musical director a few days later and said, is he versatile? Because <laughs> apparently, you know, Paul and Linda were looking for somebody who was going to replace Jimmy McCulloch, who had just a wider range, musical mm -hmm. range. And right. over the next few months, I ran into, I ran into them, Paul, Linda and Denny at a studio in London where they were recording and they were running and I was early for my session, and so I got to kind of hang with them for a little bit. But it wasn't until about six months later that I was at Abbey Road. I was actually in studio mm. wow. too. I was in the Beatles studio, mm -hmm. and I got a phone call, which was very unusual. Of course, this is before cell phones. Uh, but to actually, sell, a phone call in the studio was usually, you know, the last time it had happened was when my father had passed away. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of, I'd never been up into the control room. I'd done plenty of sessions in Abbey Road Studio 2, but I'd never been up the staircase because you didn't mm -hmm. do that. You know, as a musician, you were kind of Yeah, you, you have your place. Yeah, you're, you're performing. Yeah. At least we didn't have to wear, like, you know, lab coats like the, uh, the engineer. <laughs> uh, but I went to answer the fo this phone call, and on my way through the control room, it was like, ooh, look at that console. You know, it had quadrant faders. You know, instead of throw of a fader, they had those kind mm -hmm. of, like, curved faders like you see in the pictures on the Beatles session. And it was McCartney's office on the phone saying, you know, Denny wants to know if you can come and jam on Monday. And oh, by the way, Paul and Linda will be there. 
um, which panicked me a little bit because I really didn't know any wing students. So I borrowed mm -hmm. some LPs from my brother mm -hmm. and realized that there was no way I was going to identify, you know, enough of the tunes to know what we would, we would uh, playing. And as it turned out at the audition, we, we did some Chuck Berry tunes and some reggae grooves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and then I got off at the gig. Steve Holly, the drummer auditioned at the same time as me. And we, um, you know, and when Paul said, what are you doing for the next few years? I had to think about it seriously mm -hmm. for about an hour because I was <laughs> yeah. giving up a career that I had spent my entire teenage years kind of building up to mm -hmm. yeah. and had accomplished my goal. But I wasn't going to turn down the opportunity to work with Paul McCartney. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I ended up working with three, three of the four Beatles. So. Yeah. Wow. Excellent. You were on the last album. All right, Jim's, Jim's, got, Jim's got the album right here. Take a it, look yeah. here. Yeah, well, glare. Yeah. And you're in the, uh, yep. where am I? Red jacket. Yeah, is that, a, is that a red leather jacket? Actually, a brown jacket. It's brown, colored. yeah, brown and red. Do you still shirt. have that? In the pre-digital age, color separation wasn't quite as... Uh, mm -hmm. Exactly. Do you still have that jacket? <laughs> Probably wouldn't fit me anymore no. anyway. Okay. Yeah, I I, You've I, lost I weight, I understand. Like, yeah. I, I grew a, a size or two since then. So Mike and I, we were 13 when this album came out. Right. And uh -huh. it was my first introduction to Wings, so it's my favorite album. Because, you know, cool. just me memories. Mm -hmm. Again, you're buying an LP or you're listening to the radio. That's how you're getting your music. Yeah. That's At how the it age in those days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So at the age of 13, the oddest song to me, well, there's another odd song in this album, but getting closer because of the word salamander. <laughs> and I don't know, maybe I had a salamander at the time. You like reptiles. You know. But I never heard the word salamander in a song before. No, it's a, I don't know that it's ever been used in a song before. It's mm -hmm. not referring to a reptile. No. But a salamander, another meaning of salamander is a, like a fire sprite it's like okay. when you if you look at the fun, those little kind of flames that shoot up are called oh, salamanders okay, okay. Yeah. well as a 13 year old yeah. salamander yeah, yeah we just we just know them under rocks and it, the yeah. yeah 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 okay so we learned something so those little uh as you say sprite the little sparks that fly out from a fire they're yeah. a salamander you know when he says my salamander you kind of think of this girl as having kind of a fiery spirit oh, okay oh. now i know I never knew like, but that. Slightly, but elusive Irish spirit. So there you go. Mm -hmm. Elusive. That's my well. story, and I'm sticking to it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I know you, you're an instrumentalist, but I wanted to know if you also have done vocals, and did you do any vocals on this album? Because I know there's a lot of backing vocals. Yeah, I mean, the back vocals somewhere. I forget you know, okay. what. But um, mm -hmm. I, I do sing. I mean, I, you know, I'll sing periodically. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I do, occasionally I do what I call airfoil, because Paul won't let us use the name Wings. Uh, mm -hmm. But I, okay. when I do a wing set, and I, and, and I do some singing, I sing Getting Closer, for example. Okay. Junior's Farm, even, because I like to do oh. a, a homage to Jimmy McCullough. I do an instrumental version of My Love um, mm -hmm. as, oh, to dedicate to Henry McCullough. <laughs> you know, so I acknowledge my predecessors in the band. But I do sing. I just I made a decision many years ago that I was going to focus all my energy on being a guitar player. I wasn't going to divide it, you know, by spending an equal amount of time on, on being a singer. Uh, but I can sing. I can carry a tune. Mm -hmm. It's not mm -hmm. my 
not my primary mode of self-expression but but the fans like mm. it when i sing so I, okay. it's not that i don't <laughs> yeah yeah whenever we're at a show you know we want to hear uh something you know usually uh, a lot of fans want to hear either a few comments or some singing from the from the person they're come to see uh, oh you get plenty of comments from me oh yeah okay well good good i talk i mean i talk to the audience it's not a when i do a show it's not a recital it's yeah, not yeah. like crackle. <laughs> That's very good. Very you good know, for our listeners to know. I mean, you know, it's, and I'm married to a comedy writer. I mean, you mm -hmm. know, it's like I appreciate, I appreciate yeah. the value of humor. One yeah. Thing. Hey, speaking of uh, speaking of singing, uh, the lyrics to one of the uh, more famous songs was the Rockestra theme. Uh, Why haven't it, I had any dinner? Yeah. Yes, and you know it took me. It doesn't really qualify as a lyric. It's yeah. more like a. <laughs> well, believe it or not, believe it or not, that yell. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, I've heard that, and it took me uh, forty years to to actually see that and know what he's saying. Uh, why haven't I had any dinner? No, 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 no. You don't know any story. Is he just? Is he just uh, winging it, so to speak? <laughs> Wing. No, I mean it. It 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 is a musician's lament you know because very often you know you show a gig you do sound check and mm -hmm. then you do the show and and you're hungry already no and you've forgotten the you eat. don't really have you don't really time. have time to eat yeah yeah um yeah. so you know and and he, it was kind of like the old big band thing like you know pennsylvania pennsylvania whatever it was the the uh, I think it was the Miller Band or one of those that would yell. You know, they would yell mm -hmm. something. Yeah. And Paul liked the idea. You know, you have this you know huge rock orchestra to yeah. have them yell something out. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Why haven't I had any dinner? Whoa, whoa, yeah, whoa! I mean, yeah. There you go. <laughs> very good. Very good. So what what was that experience like? Because that song was not originally a wing song. There were a lot of great musicians that were brought in on now, that when you song. Say it wasn't originally a wing song well that's what i, I mean, read i know not everything's well, true it was a wing i mean it was mm -hmm. okay paul presented it to the band mm -hmm. and said i want to do this as a rock orchestra so it was wings plus okay. members of the who like Pink floyd et yeah, cetera, yeah. Et cetera. Mm -hmm. but it was still fundamentally a wings tune Okay. And, and it was written mm -hmm. for wings it wasn't written for any other purpose right, i think right. somebody was it um, Dwayne Eddy or somebody did a cover of it at one point. Okay. Um, somebody else did a version of it. It's not very complex, the song. It's not very, it's not very complex, but it's kind of straightforward. No, but it's got a cool, it's got a cool progression where, right. where the melody, as the melody repeats, the chord progression was from a C to a, a B flat to an A flat and then to an F over an A, which is kind of a cool, cool and way of doing it. Yeah. So that sound was something different and catchy to, to people's ears. I, I imagine. Yeah. 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 And that Very was, good. um, that was used as a the theme song for a radio sports show in France for years. Oh. They still may use it for <laughs> I did not know. Wow. In France. Speaking of, uh, you know, we talked about the uh, finger style and then I'm thinking too, um, you know, about strumming your, your, you know, slow or some, some aggressive strumming. And then, of course, uh, picking with a pick, uh, you know, the different uh, styles that I can imagine. I'm a drummer, not a guitarist. With wings, were you, were you doing a, a mix of all three, say, on your electric guitar? What, 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 was, what were you doing with wings? Well, I was primarily lead guitarist. Mm -hmm. So you know, playing guitar solos, playing like on old Siamsa, for example, mm -hmm. doubling Paul on the, on the riff. 
Mm -hmm. um, but I also did acoustic guitar stuff, some of it finger-picking, some of it strumming. I played bass on um, Love Awake, because Paul, mm -hmm. uh, when, they, when we cut the track, Paul and Denny were playing acoustic guitars. I played bass, and he liked the, that I'd played. So when we went to finesse it, I, I thought that he was going to do it, but he said, no, you do it. I like your part. Mm -hmm. uh, very good. And that really, I mean, you know, it's, I'm pretty versatile in what I do. So I would do whatever I was called on to do. Mm -hmm. Which, you know, and that's just the nature of it. I mean, mm -hmm. as a studio musician, post-Wings, and, and pre-Wings too, as a studio musician, I mean, I've been, as, as a guitar player in that kind of environment, 90% of the time you're called on to be, pl be playing rhythm guitar, mm -hmm. whether that's on acoustic or on electric. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's just kind of the backbone of what I do. And having had the experience over the years of playing with some of the greatest drum in the world, you know, whether that's Ringo or Jim Keltner or mm -hmm. some of the great British drummers that, mm -hmm. you know, going back to, I mean, I, I did sessions with Clem Cattini, who was a drummer in the Tornadoes. You know, remember Telstar? Well, that would be before your time because yeah. that was a hit in the 80s. But, yeah. but the, in England, I mean, there was just some amazing drummers. And then when yeah. I came to the States and, you know, uh, I've just had remarkable experience with playing with great drummers and of course you know the a lot of the time the rhythm guitar acoustic rhythm guitar needs to be locked in with the hi-hat in nashville they refer to that as the high the acoustic guitar as a hi-hat with strings yeah i, so I did not the know that is yeah without string mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> locked in tune with the hi-hat yeah yeah so that's where the group is you know yeah that that is interesting we just have a few minutes left so i have one last okay. question are you still in contact with Paul or Ringo? I noticed on your Facebook page, maybe a week ago or so, you posted a photo of Paul playing your guitar. And uh, uh -huh. Ringo's birthday was a couple of days ago. And you a great photo of you outside yeah, the recording studio. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. Ringo sitting on the lawn. And, yeah, yeah so. I love it. It's a great photo. Yeah, yeah no, that was, a, that was a special moment. I'd just written a piece and, and mm -hmm. he said, oh, play it for me. So I did, you know, it's like a, my audience was Ringo Starr. Yeah. How cool is that? Yeah. I mean, I, I in touch with Paul. We trade, you know, trade emails periodically. Um, mm -hmm. And Ringo, I ran it. Last time I saw Ringo was at the Paul Simon concert at the Hollywood Bowl when we sat down in our box and then right in front of me, I, I saw Jim Keltner sit down. So, and then Ringo was sitting next to him. So mm -hmm. got to say hi there. Yeah, but, cool. um, you know, it's like I... They, there's the kind of the celebrity Alcoholics Anonymous meetings that happen in Hollywood, which I'm not mm -hmm. in that circle. Yeah. That's where a lot of the musician community kind of like see each other in that context. But mm -hmm. it's not, not really where I live, being yeah. you know, mostly sober in my life. Because we, <laughs> we interviewed a guy named Ivor Davis. Ivor Davis? Sure, I know Ivor. That's your middle name. Yeah. Ivor is your middle name, I saw. Well, actually, it, it, technically, when I, on my certificate, it was my, my first name. But nobody oh. ever called me, except when I was in trouble at high school, and then Ivor uh -huh. Jr. would get called yeah. in the office. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but when I came to America, I switched it around, you know, mm -hmm. and it became eventually, you know, legally, I'm, I'm Lawrence Juba oh, okay. at this point. Yeah, mm -hmm. made the switch. But, uh, Very... but Ivo, no, Ivo, I, I know we run, I saw him recently, actually, at the NAMM show. Uh, okay. Yeah. Because he posted, he was, he was at Ringo's birthday party. 
I was surprised in Beverly Hills. He posted uh -huh. some photos yeah. the other yeah. day. We had a great interview with him probably yeah. uh, about a year ago and a great man. So interesting. Oh, yeah, he's yeah, yeah. Well, you know, all, all these people that had kind of Beatle experiences in the 60s mm -hmm. have really interesting stories to tell. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. I think my favorite people to talk, the person to talk Beatles with is Mark Lewison because he's, he knows more than anybody. <laughs> yeah. He's, Ivor wrote a great Beatles. book. Book. I don't know if you read it. I read it. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. a good one. <laughs> we both read it. So hey. LJ, it was great talking to you. Uh, and our listeners, you can check out LJ on Facebook. I don't know if you're on Instagram. I have my website, lawrencetuba.com. I have yes. a mailing list. Mm -hmm. And check out Tea Time. Uh, tea Time. Tea Time is not as regular as to be because okay. I'm just really busy. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Producing, writing, mm -hmm. recording. Been working they... recently with Albert Hammond. Albert Hammond Sr., not Albert Hammond from The Strokes, not Junior, but his dad. Oh, okay. Who like never that. reigns in Southern California and... Mm -hmm. The Holly's the air that I breathe, and nothing's going to stop us now for Je oh, yeah. uh, Jefferson Starship. Wonderful songwriter and very mm -hmm. cool guy. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks well, so much for your time. time. <laughs> You're very welcome. Anytime. It's great Cheers. talking to you. All right. Thank you. Stay well. All right. Okay. Bye bye. Bye. All right. Today's interview was recorded on Zoom and at Did You Say 7 Studios in Washington, New Jersey. Go to the YouTube channel for exclusive video content. Intro and exit music by the band 99%. Today's show was produced and edited by Jim Thatcher. You can find Jim and Mike Talk Music on Apple Music, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you listen to podcasts. The songs The Crow's Nest, Cobalt Blue, Maisie, and Fall of the Sparrow. Use with permission from Juber Music. Everybody!